And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Austin and Chapman pod on The Athletic. As usual, we'll bring you exclusive insight and stories from our team of writers. Coming up today, Leeds' informed striker Patrick Bamford joins us for a chat straight from the training pitch. So it'll be interesting to see how, how breathless he is after Marcelo Biel's session. Uh, David will share details from his weekly column, including an exclusive on one of European football's rising stars. We'll tell you who that is in just a moment. And Dominic Fifield will be with us don't laugh David it's not because I can't pronounce it it's just it's called a tease it's a tease <laughs> shall uh, I tell Dom- people we just had this conversation off air no, no and you decided to go for the other Dominic so I'll let you carry on <laughs> and Dominic Fifield will be with us to discuss what the future holds for Patrick Vieira following his dismissal as manager of French club Nice Read all the articles we discuss on today's podcast in full over on The Athletic. Right now, if you subscribe to The Athletic, you can give another subscription as a gift for free. So that's the perfect present for any football fan this Christmas. Uh, You get all the analysis, the in-depth features, all from the very best football writers around and ad-free versions of all our podcasts. So it's the perfect present for yourself and someone else. Just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. David's YouTube show, Ask Ornstein, continues this week. Subscribers can submit questions in the comment section of David's weekly column on The Athletic. And then I'll be back on this podcast feed on Thursday alongside Matt Slater for our new podcast, The Business of Sport. So first up, David, from your weekly column on The Athletic, your exclusive... Drum roll, please. Yeah, all right. Uh, (laughs) On Dominic... Shabozlai. Yeah. I know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got it right. Yeah, exactly. As I said, it was just a tease earlier. So Dominic Shabozlai, who we did actually mention briefly on the pod last week. Yeah, we've said that a number of clubs are pursuing him. He's probably the most highly rated and certainly the most talked about and coveted player from the 2000-born age group bracket. And, you know, there's been huge speculation around his future with RB Salzburg because uh, there's a 25 million euros release clause and that's led uh, links to RB Leipzig, the sister club of RB Salzburg, the likes of Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, Tottenham, Arsenal and a whole host of other clubs. Many people tell me that he will be the biggest transfer, maybe not in terms of price but in terms of the sort of stature and magnitude and conversation of the January transfer window. Um, It's not guaranteed he'll move in January, uh, of course, but it's very likely. And in the column we explained today that contrary to some suggestions that have been around prior to this report saying that this 25 million euros release clause could be paid over a period of time, which would make it even more attractive for clubs in January. It it can't, is my understanding. It has to be the 25 million euros in full, in one go, paid in January. And then there's further detail to it. So Dominic Shabozlai has until the 15th of December, so a week today, 
to give notice to serve uh, his intention to RB Salzburg that he wants to leave. And he may have already done that. I'm not sure. And then clubs need to submit their bid by the 31st of December, New Year's Eve, of that 25 million euros. There will no, be no bidding war, as I know it, afterwards. If if several clubs are there and they offer more money, it would just be down to, to his preference. Then, once the bids have been registered, or whichever bid has, is going to be the one that's accepted by the player, that club has two weeks a fortnight to pay the 25 million euros. So that takes you to the middle of January. This scenario repeats itself in the summer if it doesn't get completed in January. And I think the deadline for him to give his notice to RB Salzburg is the 30th of June. And then the bids need to be submitted by the 15th of July. And then again, the payment would need to take place in two weeks. So I think... I've covered everything there. And the bottom line is that um, clubs will need to get their skates on. That's if they're going to use the the release clause. You could technically negotiate separately to that and do it whenever you like. But given it's so low for a player of such high quality and potential, you suspect that a number of clubs are going to go in for this release clause imminently. And it seems that he may be ready to move, even though he's only 20 years old and still relatively inexperienced. But he has played in the Champions League and impressed for Hungary at international level. Speculation suggests that RB Leipzig are the favourites to sign him, which has happened with many RB Salzburg players. Well, I was going but... to say that. There's a surprise. I wonder, wonder but not what the everyone. link is there. Not, not everyone. Erling Haaland went from Salzburg to Borussia Dortmund, yeah. so he skipped uh, RB Leipzig. And given that it's likely... Sobozlai will never be at a lower fee than he is now if he continues on this trajectory. You would imagine that many other clubs will try and get him ahead of ahead of Leipzig, but they'll need that 25 million euros ready to pay now and they'll need to do it in in rapid time and they'll need him to choose them. So there's a lot of little clauses that need to be met for this deal to happen, but many people I speak to expect it to. It's just about where it will be. It's interesting you talk about would a club offer more and not meet the release clause? I suppose if you, I mean, there must be there must be something put in legally that means people couldn't do that. You couldn't say go to Salzburg. I tell you what, we'll pay you thirty million, but by doing by paying that extra five million, you take out that twenty five percent of any future fee. I'm sure there are lots of people in football who who spend their time trying to work out how to circumnavigate various release clauses and and other clauses within contract. Yeah, I'll, I'll address both of those points. That I forgot to mention. Uh, I knew there was something typical of me because I waffle, as you know. So I'm here um, for you, David. I'm <laughs> there here. Is a, <laughs> there is a twenty percent sell-on clause. This is really important. So uh, remiss of me to forget. There's a twenty percent sell-on clause. So RB Salzburg will receive twenty percent of the future sale, and unusually, this applies to the entire fee in the future and not just the profit, which is normally the case. Uh, So, for example, with Wilfred Zaha, Manchester United have a sell-on clause from when they sold him to Crystal Palace, and that, uh, I think it's about 25%, that will only apply to the profit Crystal Palace make if they sell him above what they paid Manchester United for him. That's normal. Not in the case of Sabozlai. Salzburg will get 20% of the entire thing. So... You buy him for 25 million euros, you're essentially gaining 80%. Uh, If you were to sell him for, say, 100 million euros, 20 
20% of that goes back to Salzburg, not 20% of the 75 million euros difference. And that's really important. And it could be off-putting for some clubs, although I doubt it because the 25 million euros fee is so low for a player of such quality that you'll probably see it as... Uh, a minor inconvenience. Back to your other question. It has been done before that, that clubs have negotiated higher than the release clause in order to secure, I don't know, a more favourable payment structure. So one of the conversations that was taking place more in the public domain, I think, than behind the scenes when Arsenal were looking to sign Thomas Partey and they knew about his €50 million Euros release clause was whether they could pay a little bit more and then stagger it instead of having to pay the 50 million euros in one go. As it happened, as we know, they ended up paying the 50 million euros in one go. We've looked into other Arsenal signings in the past. I think it was Lucas Torreira when uh, there was perhaps a release clause involved there and Arsenal paid a little bit more. And it was once explained to me that that meant that Arsenal could pay in much more favourable payment terms. So I don't think that's impossible. However, with this, it sounds to me, without having seen or knowing every detail of the contract, that they are just going to do it on the clause. And once clubs have met that, it will be up to Sabozlai to decide. Yeah, and arguably the most talked about potential destination in the Premier League has been Arsenal, so I may as well address that. As we've said before on here and in my YouTube programme, Arsenal do like, of course... Dominic Shabozlai, he is one of the options they're considering uh, because we know that they're looking to improve their creativity. Mesut Ozil will be leaving in the summer, we presume, when his contract expires. He's not even in the Premier League and, and Europa League squad at the moment. Arsenal's aim was to sign a sort of number 10 creator, somebody that could also operate towards the side as well in the summer of 2021, unless opportunities arose for something to be done in January. So I do think they're considering him but he's only one of a number of options. And there is a really good analytical piece on The Athletic by Tom Warville in which he explains some of Arsenal's reservations, which are, are potentially understandable, and I'm sure other clubs um, probably share them too, uh, of a player who's at such an early stage of his career. And it will be a really big decision if, if they decide to go for it. And even then, he obviously would have to decide to join them as well. So lots of options. He, he's in a really strong position uh, as a player and, and I look forward to seeing what happens. Uh, OK, another line in the uh, column is uh, to do with Liverpool. James Pearce has contributed this one about their keeper who's impressed in the couple of games that we've seen him, Cleveland Keller. Yeah, it's a really interesting story and rise to prominence for a player who seemed like, if you read this uh, item, and, and a big piece that I think Simon Hughes did on Kelleher the week before, uh, when he obviously got that start and impressed in the absence of Alisson, that he could very easily have not come to this stage, uh, like many players, you could say. But it all relates to uh, recommendations, players uh, who knew him when he was growing up, very low amounts of money, Really an element of trust from Liverpool. If the money had been much higher that they would have had to pay, I don't think they would have taken the risk. Everything seemed to suit them just right. It's a, it's a really nice story and, and pretty remarkable for somebody that's now between the, between the sticks for Liverpool. And of course, Alisson will come back and it seems like he's going to be ready for Liverpool's next match. But Kelleher appears to be now the club's number two. He seems to have leapfrogged Adrian and would appear to have a really bright future ahead of him. So yeah, go and read what James has written about him in the uh, Monday column. All right, go to the column then. Uh, we'll talk Patrick Vieira a little later on the podcast. And next, we're going to talk to Leeds' Patrick Bamford. And there's a mistake here, and Bamford's in for a goal for Leeds. 
Still a bit to do here, Patrick Bamford. That's lovely, and I said Bamford's got to get a bit more clinical. And he showed that side to his game here. The first thing's first. You have just come from a Marcelo Bielsa Monday training session. So what happens on a Monday after a game on a Saturday? Um, we had three gym sessions, then outside running, and then we had an hour-long meeting today. <laughs> so, yeah. Three gym sessions? Yeah, we've got the game on Friday this week. Instead of having one gym session tomorrow and two today, we put all three today. So, When you have that hour-long meeting, is that something that you've always bought into? Do you think you individually, that real preparation, or is that something you've had to get used to? I think it's something we had to get used to. I think it's one of them things where they're not always an hour long. Um, they can be 20 minutes. They can vary anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour. I think the fact that we lost the game, um, normally after we've lost, uh, the breakdown is more intense, especially when there's things that we could have done to prevent it, which I think was the main emphasis of that meeting. Do you appreciate the finer detail of that? Or are there sometimes when you go, do you wonder whether the tiniest detail is as relevant as, say, the bigger picture? I'm just really interested because I've seen I suppose my background, Patrick, is I've seen it so many times in the NFL yeah. and so many meetings and all those documentaries where they sit in big lecture theatres and they're there for ages and they go over the tiniest thing because there are so many plays and it's second nature to them. Whereas it, it never really used to happen in our football. General human beings, after about 20 minutes, you tend to naturally drift <laughs> off a little bit. But that's something that I think when he first came getting used to them long meetings was quite hard but now kind of because we are used to it it is full concentration and um we do we nitpick everything really the fact that our physical stats weren't bad but chelsea really outperformed what they'd done the rest of the season in terms physically and then obviously you know about chelsea's uh like how good they are i think that that's probably the best team we've played this year um so we were just breaking down really the faults that we made and how we could have possibly made it a different outcome or a slightly more even game. Can you give a bit of insight into the modern footballer and whether under Marcelo Bielsa, in, in your case, you're um, doing all of your work at the training ground and when you say nitpicking, you're going through all the details in your meetings, etc. Or are you coming home and having to do studies of your opponents, looking through DVDs, clips, YouTube, whatever it is? Does that exist or not? There's a fair amount done at the training ground, like using today, for example, having a meeting. I think on a general week, we'd probably have, before the, the match day, probably three to four meetings throughout the week. Then on the match day, there's various meetings and individual meetings before the game. And then also throughout the week, you get sent various things. Like sometimes I get sent clips of the defender I'm going to be playing against. The, the last three weeks, on no, maybe, maybe two weeks ago, I had probably two or three videos sent every day of Erling Haaland, um, like 15 minute videos, each one. And so, yeah, I had to watch them and just kind of see what I can pick out from him. So it's all like a process of trying to help me learn. What did you pick out from him? Because you finished quite like Haaland at uh, Chelsea on Saturday. Yeah, to be honest, it was quite similar to some of his goals. I think that one of the things that maybe, even though I feel like I've grown a lot, is I can work on the explosiveness of my runs sometimes I feel like looking back when I do look back through the game sometimes I'll make a run but it's not with 100% determination or conviction and ultimately it doesn't lead to anything so I think that's something that 
it doesn't just happen overnight. Like there's things that Marcelo's worked with me on that they took six months to come to fruition, things like that. They don't just, it's not just a click of a fingers and it changes. It's, it's something that to takes a period of time. So there's always things to be learned and uh, he's always sending you clips or pushing you to, to learn new things and kind of teach yourself. Do you kind of feel you're at the right club at the right time with the right head coach, which you as an individual have to take advantage of, but we all need a little bit of luck in our lives. Yeah, 100%. I think that a lot of the time, it depends where you are. Sometimes like the penny drops at the right moment. I think there's been times in my career where maybe I've not, partly down to myself, but partly down to luck, as you say, that I've not been in the, the right situation that suits me and someone who, who believes in me like he does. I mean, a lot of managers, because of the way I've, kind of my style, I guess, they kind of were quick to, sh- to shut me down. But he saw something and saw something he could work with. And to be honest, I've kind of reaped the benefits so far and hopefully continue to do so. Can you explain whether it's more about him on a human level and what he gets out of you personally? to the extent that you seem like you'd run through brick walls for him now? Or is it more what he does on the training ground with you each day? I presume you're going to say it's probably a combination of the two. But with some of these managers, I don't know how much different they would do on the grand scheme, maybe fine details here and there. But the way you've talked about him in the, the interview that you did with Stu James recently, almost like the lovable grandfather, are you just so sort of committed to him on a personal level and him to you that with those small tactical tweaks, you are transforming as a player? Look, throughout my career, I always wanted to be the main number nine somewhere. And he was really the first manager that properly gave me that chance. So I think probably subconsciously, there's part of me that's always in debt to him. So I'm willing to do anything. I listen to everything he says. Yeah, there's been times where I've probably not agreed with it. And, <laughs> but you don't, you, don't, you don't answer back. You take it on the chin. And um, I think that with him, there's that mutual respect because, you know, his understanding of the game is just so ridiculous that there's so many things that I can learn, not just me, that everyone in general is, is willing to learn from him as well. And on about the Stuart James interview, the, the grandfather side of him, that won't come out until the job is done. He's yeah. very demanding, very demanding. And I think that's only a good thing because naturally like people kind of sit in the comfort zone. When they get in a comfort zone, you kind of just stay still, you stagnate. So with him, he's always pushing you to the next level. And that's something I think I need. Um, it helps me and I'm, all, I'm eager to learn. But to have someone that just gives you that constant pushing, I think that definitely helps. Isn't it weird about the, the sort of modern trend? And this happens with centre-halves as well. You said, you, you know, you always wanted to be the main number nine. But so often youngsters are started out wide rather than through the middle. Certainly happens with, with centre-halves. But, you know, Dominic Calvert-Lewin is flying this season. Now he's going through the middle. He He was pushed out wide in the early stages at Everton. You look at Mason Greenwood as well at the moment at Manchester United. They keep saying he'll be a number nine, but they play more out wide at the moment. Is that what is that? Is that a lack of trust? What did you find? Partly is a lack of trust. Um, I think that certainly when I was younger, I actually started, especially at Middlesbrough, playing out on the right a lot. Until you hit a certain age, you don't quite get the, the nouser experience that you need 
to be able to play up front on your own. I think that that comes with time because it's not the same as like playing reserve football or, or youth youth age football. And you, the team needs to rely on the striker ultimately if, to be able to hold the ball up. It's not just about scoring goals. They've got to do so much more now, especially playing up front on your own. So I think that is, it's a learning curve. And by playing younger players out wide, I feel like that kind of takes a little bit of the pressure off them as well, whilst they can still get their experience, they can still influence the game and, and show what they've got it takes a little bit of pressure off them whilst they're still learning. The thing I wanted to ask you the most on the other side of the picture, we've talked a lot about tactically, but on the sort of personal side, and it's so pertinent at this point in time, you've clearly got a really thick skin. You've talked about that in interviews. Um, so many people had a, a very clear perception of you that he's not going to be good enough. We've seen that talk sport tweet that you replied to. Almost at times, a bit of a laughing stock that he was a Chelsea reject, he one of many, um, that he he would never score in the Premier League. And then social media age sort of rose with your career. And I experience it as well on a, on a much smaller level as, as a journalist. Often I go back to these people and they're far more, they never think you're going to reply. And then when you do, they sort of back off and it's completely different. Like, how do you deal with that, honestly? Um, did you need a psychologist? Did did you need to talk things through with people? Because I think about it with certain stories I write when I'm going to bed and when I'm waking up in the morning and it almost pervades your brain, but you are getting that on a much bigger scale. Through football from the very start, you, you kind of do develop a, a thick skin, um, whether it's coming up through the academy and there's the kind of prospect of getting released at a young age. You have that toughness to that, but then as you said, it's heightened with social media and as you become more in the, in the eye of the public. I try and ignore it as much as I can, but yeah, I did, I did reply to that talk sport tweet because I thought, just shut up, you haven't even seen me. Give me a chance. I, I didn't really have a shot last time. So I try and ignore it. I, I have a sports psychologist, but that's not really for that kind of thing. That's just general gameplay and things like that. I've had him for years. It's one of them things where I think you, you've got to learn to, to deal with it. At the end of the season, if I end up with a lot of goals and Leeds finish in a good position, there's still going to be someone out there who says something bad about me. It's, there's still going to be something that I can't do or something that I'm not very good at. So ultimately, there's going to be loads of opinions flying about. And I think it does take a bit of experience to kind of get used to it because there were times where it did used to piss me off. Um, but now kind of just got to accept that, that people are going to say what they want to say. You've only really got to listen to the people who are close to you, their opinions that count at the end of the day. At, at the end of every game, do you look at it? I mean, do, do, you, do you get on the team coach and then look at it? Or are you looking in the dress room or do you leave it 24 hours? What do you do? For example, I don't look at anything. 24 hours after match of the day, I don't look at anything because I know that there'll be just loads of shit on there and I just don't need it. And then I hope after 24 hours, then something else will have happened and, and, you know, I can look at it again. I don't really look at it. If I'm searching for a, like a goal or a certain incident, then yeah, I'll type it in. Yeah. I actually saw something funny. <laughs> I'd say I don't look at it. I saw it after the Chelsea game <laughs> about where I went into a tussle with Reese James. People were obviously like making jokes out of that, but generally I don't look at it straight after the game. Like a season or two ago, yeah, I did. When I think you find... When you're going through a tough spell, you tend to try and like 
start looking a little bit to see what they're saying but kind of managed to cap that off um about a season and a bit ago I say the athletic did did something with Gary Lineker not that long ago and he said he'd talk to any strikers who think they could learn something from him and what I actually find with quite a lot of the those the great strikers from the 80s and 90s even those who are and the ones that are doing punditry as well now Lineker Shearer Right, in particular, from the ones I work with, are all very open actually to passing on advice to the ones coming through if you want it. Yeah, um, I think that's great to be honest. I mean, yeah, get on well with uh, look, I'd be down to speak to Gary Lineker, and uh, there was a running joke a while ago that I was going to be after his job when I finish, but um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know whether he'll still speak to me. But I get on really well with Wrighty to be honest, because when I just went to MK Dons, he was the strikers coach there, so I've known him for years. I'm in touch with him every now and then, he's always like looking out for me, but yeah, you, you can never have enough information, especially of people who've been there and done it. What was he like, <laughs> as somebody who works with him a lot, what was he like as a strikers coach? It was weird because I think he was the reason that I actually signed for MK Dons. So he was playing in a 21s game for Chelsea against Palace. I remember Carl Robinson went to watch the game with Wrighty and someone else. I don't know who he was looking at, but Wrighty sold him there and then he said, you need to take him. And then that kind of ultimately, I was like, Oh, like I love Ian Wright. I've actually got a picture of me with Ian Wright as a Forest mascot when he was a Forest player. Like, have you? Yeah, I've got a picture stood next to him and he, I've sent it in before. He was good as a strikers coach. Like when yeah. training would finish, he wouldn't. He would only be there maybe one day a week, maybe two days a week. But me and him would literally just us two spend an hour afterwards. He'd just be dropping me balls, no keeper, working on technique of different finishes and it was just good like to be able to have that hands-on work with someone like that like, you can't really beat it. Did it become slightly awkward that when Eddie Nketiah was on loan at Leeds Wrighty mm-hmm. is such an advocate of his they're very close and Marcelo yeah. only really plays one striker and it seemed that all of the public wanted Eddie Nketiah and nobody wanted Patrick Bamford because he didn't score goals but it would be proved uh, dramatically incorrect, that view. So, was that a bit difficult with Wrighty or not? Not really, to be honest. He, he was still messaging me when I did well. He was still messaging me, like, support and stuff. And the idea would have been if me and Eddie had played together for him. But um, sometimes it, it doesn't work like that. But no, things never got awkward. He, he's a great guy. If we look at the rest of the season, what was interesting in the Stu James article as well is how much you are setting yourself individual targets with Euros on the horizon and how maybe different targets are coming into your mind that maybe you wouldn't have even thought about six months ago? I mean, to be honest, I know I've played in the Premier League before, but I kind of saw this time as my first real real chance in the Premier League. So in my head at the start of the season, I was saying, look, hit double figures. Like double figures, it's, it's not a bad return. It's okay. Obviously, now I adjust that. Keep moving. I haven't hit it yet, but keep keep pushing and keep setting new targets every time. With the sleepless night thing, that was just like a little boy inside me. Um, kind of just yeah. kind of told myself oh, it might happen. And I just couldn't get to sleep. It was one of them things where I was just... It was, I, that was actually Twitter's fault because it came out on Twitter <laughs> that, he was, that he was announcing the squad the next day. And I completely forgot about it. And then yeah, I just was, my mind was whirling that whole night. The biggest point I've got before we leave you is that at the beginning of that interview, which I think was in mid-November, it said you had your 
Christmas decorations up. I think that looks more like foliage, but if it's Christmas decorations in mid-November, you've got some explaining to do. Yeah, well, you better not say foliage too loud. <laughs> Michaela was the one who put them all up. But, um, <laughs> so basically, the decorations, last year we had um, a real tree and it was so much hassle, like the mess it created. It was just like, not doing that again, we'll get one that we can keep and put away after. So we got it and we ordered it and it came really quick. And Michaela was just like, I'm not taking it upstairs to bring back down in two weeks. So I'm just going to put it all up now. And I thought 2020 has been such a weird year. And why not? It gives a little bit of like spirit to the home and stuff. So Thank you very much for talking to us. Oh, uh, it's so much. much appreciated. Uh, you're always a great interview. Congratulations on your starts to the season. Hope it continues, Patrick. Thank Cheers, you. Guys. Thank you. Wish you all the best, mate. Thank Take you. care. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Finally on the pod, let's talk about Patrick Vieira and what next for him. Sacked by Nice last week, having been linked, of course, with the Arsenal job last year. He's also been part of the Manchester City group in the past, so he's very much on on their radar. The Athletics' Dominic Fifield has written a piece in response to that very question of what next for him. He's with us now. First of all, what went wrong for him at Nice, Dom? Well, plenty in the end. He was a bit of a victim of, of circumstances to a, to a certain degree, and as much as he was hired by one ownership at Nice, by two figures in particular within that hierarchy, uh, who then fell out with the owner and they both left. I think Patrick Vieira felt very betrayed and, and exposed when, when when those guys, the president and the, and the sporting director, departed. They then followed the, the Jim Ratcliffe, Ineos takeover of, of Nice and, and the two president and the, the sporting director returned. So he's now in this awkward situation where he's working with people that he has felt betrayed by. The takeover happens very late in the day in, in, in terms of a transfer window in, in late August 2019. Um, which doesn't allow them to to rebuild a squad that's lost a few key players um, since he's arrived. And uh, he's actually done quite well to get through last season to finishing fifth in the the division and and, and in a truncated division, admittedly. But what's followed in the period since has been a summer of, you know, fairly relatively lavish spending, given that Ratcliffe is a billionaire, the third richest man in, in, in Great Britain. He's put a bit of money into it all and it just hasn't worked out this season. Uh, Vieira was dismissed after the f- a fifth successive defeat that uh, saw them eliminated from, from Europe by Bayer Leverkusen. Uh, nice are very much in mid-table now. There's been a lot of criticism of the, the style of play that they've they put out there. The football's been described by many sources as being dull. 
bit of a plod um not much not much zest in any of it i think there's a bit of an awkward situation where you've got a lot of new players trying to be integrated in the team at the, at, at the same time and I, I think he struggled with that but there's no discernible style or, or structure to to nice's play and, and that ultimately that's what's cost him they've, they've decided to go with a with the assistant manager uh, ahead of him, and I think that's that in itself is quite damning. But it, it really reached the situation last week where they had to make a change. There was an open revolt, you know, the ultras barring the coach's departure from the training ground en route to Allianz Riviera uh, Stadium for that game against Bayer Leverkusen last week. And when you've got open mutiny, even with fans in absentia at the moment, uh, his position really became untenable. Mark mentioned he's been linked with a, a couple of jobs in England. Newcastle was one of them, actually. I think there was an approach to him maybe once or even twice over the last few years. I think a lot of people listening to this will want to know what do we come away from this period with an impression of Patrick Vieira as what kind of a manager uh, is he and is he ready for something bigger or is he looking like it's perhaps not going to kick off for him as a manager? It's probably too early to say to be honest I mean he, he lasted two and a half years in Nice he's not like he's lost his job after six months here yeah when he was at New York City he had a discernible style there they played 4-3-3 they, they were they were quite uh, I think they were quite expansive and, and attractive to watch but maybe transposing that onto a league side, an ambitious league side as well in Nice has has just proved too difficult for him, and it, it almost feels as if after two and a half years it's just stagnated. He, you're right; he, he apparently was interviewed for the Newcastle job in 2015, when just before Steve McLaren got the got the role. That um, there is clearly a, a manager in there, a coach in there that, that's still wanting to express himself. He has to look at this experience as a bit of an education. Uh, it, it's he he will have learnt from where it went wrong you'd like to hope um, at, at Nice and, and hopefully the next role he gets which may have to be at a club at maybe slightly lower level maybe a club that isn't competing in Europe already see whether he can produce a team playing a discernible style and, and, a, and a more attractive style with them and be successful at it because at the end at Nice that wasn't the case. This is going to be a problem for an awful lot of these former players in their late 30s and early 40s, isn't it? In, in that the jobs they get in the main are going to be at clubs where their best players could well go at the end of a, of a season. As, as you say, as happened with Vieira at Nice, players did leave. You know, there aren't many who get the Frank Lampard, I'm at Chelsea, I can bring lots of players in and, and not many players are leaving roles. Well, no, and that's... Lampard's almost in a unique position. Yeah. I suppose you could argue, you could argue the same for Steven Gerrard has gone into a, a big role at, at Rangers and, and has done very very well. Let's get it right. He, he's, he's he's having a wonderful season. It looks as if he's tipping the the balance in, in Scottish football again. But yeah, it's it is rare. And actually, I think most coaches would look at Nice as a as, as a really quite attractive proposition, given the money that's behind them, um, the ambition there, the setup. I mean, it's a wonderful stadium. We, you know, we we were there at the the Euros in 2016, and it's it's a it's a superb arena. Yeah. Okay, you're going to hit a ceiling because you've got PSG up against you. So you know whether you can you know necessarily dominate French domestic football is is very much open to question. But I think there was a, a general sense of disappointment, anticlimax about it all. Not not least because down the road in in Marseille. In a club that has its own financial issues, uh, Andre Villas-Boas actually had a, 
an amazing season last year round and, and, and finishing, I think it was second, and did so well that that sort of contrasts with Vieira's toils in, in recent times. You could even even look at the progress made by Lille or, or even Ren. I know Ren are having a difficult time of it this season. In, oh, in, I was, gonna, Europe, I was actually going to mention Ren there because Ren have obviously had a difficult time in Europe and Ren are actually only a point ahead of Nice in Liga, mm-hmm. having played a game more. That, and that's, I suppose, was what, if you take Paris Saint-Germain out of it, the rest of them are really in a bit of a cyclical yeah. s- swings and roundabouts, however many other cliches I can think of to, <laughs> to throw in there. But, you know, even Lyon and Marseille have had their doldrum moments and then come back a little bit and then fall away again. And that's the nature of it if you're not Paris Saint-Germain. Absolutely right. And Leon's season last year was an unprecedented disaster. Absolute yes, disaster. The yeah. first time they hadn't qualified for Europe since the 90s. But now they're third. And and doing well without the pressure of European football yeah. clogging up their, their calendar, I imagine. I mean, it's uh, that's been Wren's problem, I think. There was a lot of overhaul in the summer. They, they obviously didn't anticipate losing Rafinha to Leeds. Um, and their rebuild to get a squad that was capable of challenging on, on two fronts just has proved beyond them. They're also a club that had never experienced Champions League football before, so it was complete you know, journey into the un- unknown. And it's, it's really tripped them up. I thought they would finish third in that group, but they're not going to overhaul Krasnodar now. So it's, that, that has been a, a rude awakening for Stefan and, and, and the way that everything that he, he'd achieved at, at, at Rennes. But it is like that in French football. I mean, Monaco have, have, have been and gone and Rennes are doing the same. Lille, likewise, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's the, the, who is the best of the rest behind PSG? And, and this is, Bear in mind also that PSG haven't been particularly consistent themselves this year. So yeah. for most most years, this would be an opportunity for somebody to to make a mark in Ligue 1. But it's 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 a fascinating league. But Nice would would expect to be competing given the, the money they've spent and the and the backing they've got now. I'm guessing David Vieira's for a whole variety of circumstances. Vieira would be way off the Arsenal radar now. Well, I think he was in the conversation in 2018 when Unai Emery got the job. He wasn't interviewed for it on that occasion. I can't remember. I mentioned who was interviewed for that job uh, in one of my Monday columns. So people should look back on that or I'll have a a look myself. Well, we we all have your (laughs) back catalogue very readily to hand, let me just say. (laughs) But he he definitely was interviewed when Arteta got the job. There were a couple of meetings uh, in London, as I think we reported at the time. And... I don't know, he was quite a good fit in terms of the fact that he had Arsenal DNA and Premier League experience as a player, vast, uh, and top-level coaching experience with Nice. And I'd be intrigued in Dom's thoughts on this, that the fact that it wasn't, say, a six-month or nine-month stint, it, it was a good couple of years. And despite the fact he's been sacked now, that could curry favour with a lot of clubs who have a, a decent sample size to look and analyse what he's like as a coach, as a man manager, um, study his results and his relationships, methods, vision, etc., etc. Um, he will, of course, be very highly thought of because of that connection with the Premier League and with Arsenal, although he's got no real connection with the modern Arsenal, the Arsenal we see today. That's incredibly different from the club that he knew. So I don't see that being one, you know, would it be third time lucky with him as and when Arteta leaves? It's impossible to say. He's certainly someone that will always be highly thought of at Arsenal, but having maybe not succeeded in the French league, I think it would be a, a tough argument. And whenever Arsenal do move on from Mikel Arteta, you know, again, very hypothetically, I'm not sure that you would then go for another sort of rookie type manager. And although 
Vieira is not a complete rookie, he would be in terms of Premier League experience. Then again, by the time that comes around, he may well have had another job in between. I think he may look to get into one of the bigger leagues now. He's had a change of representation and so perhaps that agent would look to bring him into England or Italy where he'd played as a player as well. It's a really interesting one. Don, what do you think on that? Do you think the the couple of years at Nice will actually serve him well as opposed to having failed in quick time fashion? Yeah, I suspect that time will will make make that stint in, in, in Nice look slightly better. I mean, yeah. there, there was a, a seventh place finish in his first season, which which was actually... I think two points and one place better off than the Lucien Favre had, had had achieved the previous year. Albeit Favre had played a very very attractive style of football, which had earned him that that move to Borussia Dortmund, and, and then obviously finishing fifth, very unlikely fifth place finish last year in 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 the the league that was curtailed early. But I mean that they were they were they seemed to be well down. They had some pretty miserable spells in in that in that year as well. But I think. People will look back at a seventh and a fifth place finish, and they will think, "Well, okay, so he's he's got them into into the Europa League." Given the sort of changing of, of ownership behind the scenes and the and the politics of it all, that's not a bad achievement. They might forget that some of the football was pretty dull en route. He's always aspired to to manage in England. Also, he's mentioned Italy in the past. I did wonder whether Italy might be the way for him to go next. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if he if he cropped up at at a, at a club over there. But then. I don't think City Football Group's admiration for him has been particularly damaged by yeah, by point. how things have gone with Nice. And, you know, there is a, a network of clubs there, by definition. Because they wanted him to go away and get experience, didn't they? That was Absolutely. one of their key requirements. Well, I mean, Brian Marwood, the, the sporting director at the time, uh, when, when he left... Um, um, New York. He was. He he actually said, "Look, we're hoping that this is all part of his learning curve. He'll he'll get get some experience at at Nice, and you know we still see him potentially as a future Manchester City manager, which is quite a thing to say for some for a rookie at that at that time. But that was the favourable impression he made in in the United States, and yeah, well, it'll be, it's intriguing to see what happens next. But it wouldn't surprise me if Italy was an option that he pursued, and then and then built built up a reputation again, which which earned him another opportunity, possibly in England at some point in the future. With your uh, Chelsea knowledge now, just to finish, and this was in David's column as well, that the club are going to ignore any offers to either loan or buy Callum Hudson Odoi when the transfer window opens in January. Quite right too. I, I know his opportunities have been limited. There are other people ahead of him in the pecking order. I mean, Pulisic will presumably come in and fill the void left by by ZH's injury for the foreseeable future but he's clearly a kid with a load of potential he's he's done well whenever he's played and yeah I fully expect him to to emerge from this season having probably made 15 to 20 Premier League appearances which isn't a bad tally when you add it to the European adventure. Dom do you think his long-term future is with Chelsea he's obviously such a talented young player but that means he will want regular starting football throughout his career which he might not get with the sort of recruitment and the age profile at Chelsea at the moment there's so much speculation around Bayern Munich he then signed a new contract but that speculation doesn't go away it just feels like something despite as you say and I agree with you he's going to get plenty of game time this season is Chelsea his long-term destination do you think he's 20 yeah he's he's 20 years old Uh, to be honest the Bayern Munich stuff smacks me of impatience on his part he 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 should he should knuckle down and make his mark at Chelsea impress in training he will get opportunities Mm -hmm. it's his club um you know he's South London he, he, he 
this this is his his opportunity is is at Chelsea and at 20 years old we we shouldn't be he shouldn't be agitating to to get a move anywhere i mean this is chelsea will offer him a structure in which he can thrive in that is that is the reality of it it's such an exciting time to be at chelsea at the moment i mean for, for, look at the look at the squad that lampard has at his disposal now look at the attacking options look at the creativity behind the look at the look at the the, the guys you know, Abraham flourishing potentially, Olivier Giroud doing what he's doing now. Werner will only get better and better. Havertz will only get better. He wants to be around these players. If he can be part of this young, thrusting young team that Lampard is developing there, then that will stand his career in good stead. He will win things at Chelsea. I don't mm-hmm. see why he should be agitating to, to move and get a get you know more game time at the moment elsewhere. He will get opportunities there and and. It's, it'll be what he makes of them. I mean, it's all in his hands. If he if he wants to thrive, he will thrive. He just needs to, to knuckle down and keep working. We'll leave it there, Dom. Thank you. Thanks, Dom. Au revoir. <laughs> See you later, guys. <laughs> Have a good <laughs> That was disconcerting. I uh, know it was, yeah. Uh. See you later. Cheers. Thanks very much for listening. That's it from us. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye. 